and you know, due to time and stuff, I had to watch it on my phone, which I wasn't Ooh, super happy gross. with. I know. I have to do that sometimes. <laughs> um That's not uh, you didn't even watch it. Keith didn't watch Mink. So we're just you. gonna move Fuck on you. to I the liked next it one. more than you did. <laughs> Fuck you. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the weekly movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, lockdown, no theaters in San Diego, California. No, no nothing. Um, yeah, we are totally locked down again. The governor issued another stay-at-home order because uh, our hospital capacity is under 15%. But I, I, but I also get it. Like, well, the, what else the issue we being do? that now that it has gone, because I'm sure that who am I? First of all, <laughs> <laughs> who are you? Uh, that's a right. bigger you question. Are Cassidy Robinson, and you are broadcasting from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains, right? Um, avoiding everything. But basically, I, I, I suspected this was going to happen. We had a, a major national election and then we had thanksgiving right afterwards so i'm not surprised at all that we are where we are and we're just gonna have to roll with it but there's bigger things to talk about like today on the podcast we are going to be reviewing the film mank the new david fincher film that uh, just premiered on netflix and we are also going to be talking about the classic classic well it's a word uh the <laughs> the, the christmas comedy beloved by some the uh, old Yes, <laughs> the 90s Christmas comedy uh, starring Steve Martin, Mixed Nuts, which neither of us had seen. I hadn't seen it. Had you before this? No, never okay. seen it. Okay. Which neither I'm of a us Steve had Martin seen. fan, so I'm kind of surprised this one. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of classic Steve Martin I haven't seen, though. So Right, right. So we're going to be talking about that at the end of the podcast. Um, but before we get into any of that, I had to ask, what are we supposed to do with this? Lifetime original is it a movie? Is it just a fake trailer? Oh, the 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 KFC Colonel thing? the KFC the Colonel Sanders uh, lifetime sex thriller starring Mario Lopez. Here's the thing: so they're calling it a mini movie, which basically accounts to a sketch. Like I'm sure it'll be like five to ten minutes long. Right. Uh, here's the thing: sure, whatever. Uh, I mean, shoot your shot, Lifetime. Go for it. <laughs> but I don't need this from Lifetime. I don't right. need quirk. I don't need sass. I don't need fucking postmodern awareness. Like, I'm just... Ugh, I'm so jaded by this sort of satire and parody that, like... And yeah. uh, the, the listeners at home can't see that I'm using... Big air, air quotes. quotes. Big air quotes. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's like... What are you parodying? Who is this for? Like, what? This isn't Comedy Central making fun of a Lifetime movie. This no. is Lifetime making, making fun, fun of, of their own Lifetime movies. And I'm like, yeah, here's the thing. If I'm the target demo of Lifetime, which I'm not, in all fairness, I, I guess I might think it's funny, but I'm like, that's I. <sighs> well, OK, that's why I was wondering. And if it. If it is a just like a ten minute short or a fifteen, even a fifteen minute short or like a too many chefs type of situation, I don't sure. even care. This wasn't even worth talking about. I'm sorry, but 
if this is like an actual feature, because they did something like this a it's couple not. years ago with Will Ferrell and... Uh, but that wasn't uh, Lifetime, was wasn't it? Wasn't it? I think it was. Will Ferrell... Oh, oh the one with uh, Kristen Wiig? Kristen Wiig and Will Ferrell. It was like a dead serious Lifetime movie that just happened to star both of them. Well, well but here's, here's the difference to me. Yeah. So that was a Lifetime original movie that was starring Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig, but mm. they were both playing it totally straight. They weren't... Right. They didn't treat it like, ooh, we're making fun of a Lifetime movie. It was like, we're in a Lifetime movie because it's fun for us. <laughs> right. So that's the, that's the joke, in, is that they happen to be in it. It's just like inappropriate casting, which I actually yeah. think is a funny idea for a joke. Yeah. So maybe like... That's what I thought this kind of was, was like sort of in that direction. No, this seems way too like inside baseball and and making fun of itself to be like, it's so on the nose. Right. That it's. I mean, if you see the trailer, it looks like, it looks like a funny or die video. It looks like a fucking, you know, college humor video. Which you don't need Lifetime to pivot to. Fucking humorous content. There is Is this a stay in your lane kind of situation? Kinda? I I mean, here's the thing. If they it's their network, they can do whatever the fuck they want. If Lifetime found you on LinkedIn somehow and were like, Keith Foster, your content on fucking Instagram is so hilarious. Please come write more of these parodies in air quotes for us. I mean, of course I would, uh, <laughs> because any fucking foot I can get in the door. But here's the thing. If I went to work for Lifetime, uh-huh. I would be much more excited to try to write a sincere Lifetime original. Like, that would be much more of a challenge. I feel like that would be much more rewarding for me. And yeah. I would try to sneak stuff in. Well, it's the, sort of this like post irony thing, right? Like yeah, it's, and and to it's me that, that the the it's meme as content. Yeah, and it to me it has so little, it has so little economic value with me anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I just I don't care. It's all just kind of noise to me. Yeah, I think I wanted to say Sharknado kind of started this because they were making fun yeah. of. Well, I mean they they had always kind of been vaguely humorous because like asylum films and stuff they know their movies are shit but Mm. that movie especially became like this hashtaggy twitter thing one of the first like movies really be built on that but really if you think back even before i think even before twitter was a thing snakes on a plane was kind of like the original yeah kind of i mean it was like it was Here's the thing. I respect that a little bit more because it got a full fucking theatrical release. Right. Um, well, it, that was the plan. Yeah. Um. I. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it's just not my thing. There's definitely a point in time when I probably would have thought it was awesome and thought it was hilarious. But yeah. I just. Here's what I crave anymore is just genuineness. Whether it's a comedy, whether it's an action movie, whether it's whatever. I just want it to be genuine and yeah, and know what it is and and be that. I don't know. I don't need everything to be punched up. You know what I mean? Right. Like I, I don't. And that you know, that or everything I, to be so hyper conceptual. Or I. It's weird to me how much comedy has like 
snuck into just regular culture and cynical comedy. Like, very yeah. cynical, very, like, ugh, this is fucking stupid kind of comedy. Yeah. Has snuck into popular culture uh, it, and making fun of popular culture, but, like, when that's what popular culture is, what do you make fun of? And it's just kind of exhausting. Okay, well, I just saw it online and I thought you might have an opinion about it. We definitely talked about it too much. Um, this is basically going to be the What's Grinding My Gears episode because here's right. the next one, the next discussion topic. I'm not even calling it news, even though it is a movie news story. Spider-Man 3. So this is done in conjunction with the Sony Spider-Man and the Marvel Spider-Man because they have this weird unholy marriage, this like legally bound relationship with each other where they kind of have rights uh, that extend to both parties. And it looks like they're going this the route of like doing the Spider-Verse thing, like in the uh, Enter the Spider-Verse mm. movie, uh, the animated film that was popular and did really well a couple years ago. Um, and so now they're trying to do something kind of like that with the live action Spider-Man. And it, it looks like everybody's game including Tom Holland is going to return as uh, the new Marvel Spider-Man, but they're talking Tobey Maguire. They're talking Kirsten Dunst. They're talking Andrew Garfield. Now they're also talking Charlie Cox coming in as Daredevil. They're talking fucking Electro, Jamie Foxx. They're, t <laughs> they're talking Alfred Molina. Pretty much anybody who's been in a, in a Spider-Man movie from the inception of comic book films is is gonna pop up somewhere in this thing yeah i here's the thing it's for me this is so early on in the project that i it, i i have a couple feelings about it the first is fucking shut up stop telling me because like what could have been some fun surprises is clearly like oh okay I'm just going to be waiting for these cameos to pop up or whatever. So, A, that's annoying. Uh, B, we already have a Spider-Verse movie, and it's right. perfect. We have a perfect Spider-Verse movie, and here's the thing. I don't think you're going to be able to outdo it because I think the, the cartoon could do stuff with animation that you're not going to be able to do in live action. So I'm already like, why are we doing this? And then I'm like, and you're giving away everything. I feel like this movie's already spoiled for me. Well, and I, I, I have maybe I haven't read as much as you have. I've just seen headlines. Um, I don't. Uh, I I don't know if this is spoilable. I mean, I don't know what this is. I don't know what justification they're going to come up with. My issue with it is more so the fact that we just saw this movie two years ago. Yeah. Why do we need a live action, basically a live action remake, um, just it's, as an excuse to to pepper in all these different Spider-Man and wouldn't it be so cool if these people crossed the universe? I mean, I guess it could be cool. I, 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 I don't know. Could, I just I, think. I think it's so early in the project that it's it's hard for me to really have an opinion about what the movie will actually be, whether or not it will be good or whatever. I, I you know, I think. I can see why people are excited for some of these characters to come back. Like, I think, you know, uh, Alfred Merlina put a very definitive stamp on 
uh, Doc Ock. I think it's it's an opportunity to maybe uh, can we give a little bit of redemption for some of the lows of the the live action Spider Man movies? Like I get why it's appealing to people, but I just I I don't know. I'm gonna have to wait to see more because at this point I'm just kind of annoyed and I. Just rather see Into the Spider-Verse 2, the cartoon. Right. Well, and that's my thing. It's like, I, I I always just feel, especially Sony. Yeah. Um, Sony is the king of like, ooh, here's, here's a thing that went well. We're yeah. going to completely misunderstand why it did well. Learn all and, the wrong lessons. And, and just more, more, more. Right. Exactly. And it's just going to be this giant pylon. And, it, you know, it's a possibility that like... Kevin Feige, Marvel, whoever ends up writing the screenplay is able to curb some of the excesses and that it, it streamlines into an actual story at some point. But I'm I'm afraid it's just going to be a big hot mess. It's just going to be a giant cameo fest. And I mean, I that I that was the I, problem with the original Spider-Man 3 was there was too much. Oh, yeah. That was but a problem with Spider-Man, uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2. And I it seems like, how do you like, make this mistake over and over again? And and also, like, that's that's not what I want to see in a, spy, a live-action Spider-Man movie. I feel like there's so much Spider-Man canon, Spider-Man stories, Spider-Man stuff that hasn't even been touched on that they, they're going these... This they just always go bigger, 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 and it's like Spider-Man is the kind of character that doesn't need to be bigger. It doesn't right. need to get to Avengers Endgame level for it right. to be really good. And and I wonder, actually, that's an interesting thought. I wonder if because of the success of the last two Avengers films. Well, I'm sure Sony Mar- is that, like, let's well, right. they want to get, get on they want to get on that anyway. But I wonder if even the Marvel model is shifting now, where intimate stories are not seen as viable. Where well, they think, oh, like, I well, Ant Man and Wasp didn't make as much money as Marvel Endgame. So again, learning the wrong lessons, they think, well, everybody wants to see a gigantic. Ice cream sandwich with every flavor. After 24 fucking movies, Mm -hmm. I can give Marvel the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, maybe this is the thing. Maybe this is their uh, moment to jump the shark. Yeah, and then if it doesn't do well and it is a giant mess, they can always just say, well, that was Sony's problem. Yeah, and they can course correct pretty easily, too. I mean... Uh, they can just write it off and be like, well, here's whatever. So I, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it, but mostly, mostly I just want to stop fucking hearing about it until there's a trailer. Cause I feel like I already know what this movie's going to be. Well, I don't know. I, I, I think it could definitely go a lot of different ways. I'm not too worried about that. Um, okay. This is the last thing I kind of want to talk about before we jump into the reviews. Uh, Dune, Matrix 4, of course, Wonder Woman 1984, 1984, as well as a lot of other films, are now going to be uh, day and date released. Uh, It's limited theatrical, however, whatever kind of version of a theatrical release that we're allowed to have at the time. 
um, as well as they're all going to be simultaneously released on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. And um, this has a lot of people kind of talking online um, about what the future of the theatrical experience is going to be, because if things aren't relatively normal pretty soon, which it doesn't look like they're going to be, you know, th- I mean, you know, there's a vaccine coming out, blah, blah, blah. We'll see how great the rollout is and then all of the uh, variables that could go into that. Let's say things are basically, you know, 75% normal by fall 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, enough to where you could actually open theaters and do things like we used to do. Well, now Regal doesn't exist as a company, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the major theater chains. AMC is hanging on by a thread. This could end up putting the bullet in its head. Um if everybody decides to stay home and watch it, which, you know, wouldn't even be a terrible idea if they did. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I have, what do you think? I have mixed feelings about this. I think... I get why Warner Brothers is doing this. You yeah. know, they have all these movies in the can that are done that that currently don't have the potential to see a release like you know so what do they do with all these movies that they've you know already done uh so on one hand i think it's i do think it's cool that they are releasing them on to hbo max and they're not and they're sort of fucking the disney model where uh disney you had to pay an extra 30 dollars for it from what i understand from what i understand you just have to have a subscription to hbo max and bam Um, it's there yeah, well, so the only caveat is it can't be a free trial. It has to be, like, a full subscription. Right, right. Um, which, sure. Uh, but, so, I I appreciate that. That it's at least, like, you're paying for the service, you're getting the movies. Like, that's so what it... did HBO base... Because I'm trying to think in, like, why the theaters think it's better to cut their losses, release it this way, the day and date... Um, without having a, you know, just putting it on iTunes or whatever, um, Hmm. video on demand where you pay $20 for the first five weeks or something before it goes to HBO Max. I Um, think this is HBO's move to kind of... uh, Well, yeah, they want to expand, obviously. They want to become a major player in the streaming wars. You know, like, right Right. now it's it's So did HBO pony up to... I mean, sure, they had to pay something to these... But... Are they going to make what they would have made is Dune or Wonder oh, Woman not. going absolutely to make the not. 500 million that they need to recoup? No, but but here's the thing. They have all these movies done. So right now they're making them zero money. They're making right. them negative money. They're making them negative 200 million dollars, you right. know. So if they can recoup some of that, you know, maybe they can continue to be a studio so right now uh, it's just a survival game for them i i think so i think and it's an a expansion game. game for hbo yes and, and what about theaters uh well and also i so for theaters i mean what options do theaters really have like i i think that it's i think that this is the only sort of compromise that could sort of please 
the most people because like like me I want to go to a theater and uh theaters are so empty right now that I'm I'm like I would go to a theater but there's nothing playing uh, you know they've been playing that fucking Russell Crowe movie for <laughs> 8 months it's I yeah. think had the longest fucking movie release time with the least amount of fucking profit in movie history probably right. um <clears throat> you know so I think some people will go to theaters and I think there are safe ways to do that. I think, um, you know, the, the, <clears throat> like the AMC option where you can rent out a theater is a viable option. Like we were talking about, uh, cause it's a hundred bucks. You rent the theater, you get it to yourselves, uh, you and up to like eight friends or something. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I would, you know, I'm going to spend 40 bucks going to the movie anyway. I would pony up the extra money so I could go with a few friends or whatever. So like that model makes sense to me. We were going to do that for wonder woman, but uh, we're back on lockdown. Um, or, you know, like some of the, the boutique, like, um, uh, uh, I can't think of the word, not prestige theaters, but like the ones where you have like the really nice chairs and stuff, you know, that, Oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're they're, saying. They're, when they opened back up, they were operating at, like, 50% capacities. So it's, like, 12 people that you're nowhere near in the theater. So I think theaters are safer than people think. And so I think people will go. Like, I would go if I had the option right now. Um, so I think the compromise makes sense. Uh, and And it might be the only way theaters can kind of get function. anything out of this like you know right so I there'll be a limited capacity of course i don't know when some of these movies release dates are it could be a while mm. from now um but you know and conceivably also, as the year rolls mm. and we have more and more vaccines that are going around more people taking them things could just start rapidly changing month per month yeah um Maybe, maybe not. Who fucking knows? But I, I also think um, that's a best case scenario. The worst case scenario, and this is I'm actually more less worried about people not going because of capacity issues or because they are mm -hmm. worried about getting sick. But I kind of feel like a lot of people, you know, even before COVID-19, even before all of this, the the value of the theatrical experience has been going down for a while. Sure. And then you and meet more and more people who say, ah, movies are expensive. I don't want to get a babysitter. I don't yeah. want to – I just want to be able to look at my phone or use the bathroom one and pause the movie or whatever. I want to eat whatever I want. And a I think – A lot of those people aren't going to movies. So why right. – why – They will for certain movies. So that's the thing is sure. before, mm -hmm. you know, in the 90s and before – um, I mean, people would go thing. to go see anything because it was you go every weekend because it was a thing to do. And but then studios studios cannot regularly make Avengers level budget right. movies to release purely on streaming like it, it just it's not a sustainable model. Right. And no. I don't so think that's the other thing is maybe Avengers sized movies aren't gonna be a thing anymore i i don't think that's true i i hear i they might go away for a while but i don't think that's a bad thing i think no uh i think 
you know, maybe let's give movies some breathing room right now. I think the industry kind of needs a little bit of a reset. So, Well, they're getting that whether they want it or not. Exactly. I don't think that that idea is a bad now, thing. I have kind of like a post, post-apocalyptic, like, utopian fantasy that <laughs> all of these empty AMCs and regal theaters that have now, you know, the businesses have closed or whatever, um, all end up getting bought out by independent owners and everybody, you know, are running movies like they used to where every, That's, he, all the these thing. major like giant, like 50 screen auditoriums are now owned by mom and pop and they can show whatever they want. And I don't think that's that crazy. You have more diversity thought. in the actual films that are playing, not just 18 screens playing Avengers 12 and two screens playing totally. the next Ari Aster film. Here's, um, I mean, here's the thing. I don't think that that is that unrealistic of, of an outcome. Movie theaters are going to exist. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're not going to go away completely. It might It mm-hmm. might change the business model. It might change... Uh, the way movies are made, but and here's the thing: I think it's going to impact. It's not going to impact cities. It's not going to impact New York. It's not going to impact L.A. You're always going to be able to find a movie theater in L.A. Right, right. It's going to impact places like Pocatello, Idaho. It's right. going to impact you know the places where you already have to drive two and a half hours to see certain movies. That's just not even going to be an option anymore, and that's what worries me the most is not i'm fine i'm gonna have movie options but it it bums me out that places like my hometown are i think those are the ones that is like that are yeah, gonna movie suffer. theaters just aren't gonna exist there. yeah i think that and i think that and i also think it's going to be more like i think it's going to be i think anything that isn't gigantic that can't I'm talking about years in the future now. I'm talking like yeah. five plus years where this whole thing is totally behind us and we're, you know, whatever. Um uh, there's some new kind of ec- economy happening. Mm-hmm. Uh I think that my theory is that most theaters are going to close and just get turned into Planet Fitness or whatever. Yeah, um, and, and maybe a new chain of theaters will pop up eventually once they see, like... I'm, oh, the- here's what I'm thinking. I think that pretty much, and this is already, like I said, even pre-COVID was already kind of happening this way. I think most mid to small budget movies are not even going to be released theatrically, and yeah. it's all going to be your Spider-Mans and your Avengers and your... Avatar but, 3 but or whatever, thing, it, and you're going to pay, it's going to be more like going to the opera or going to the theater, or going mm. to the theater as in like stage theater, um, where you're paying $50 or $80 for a ticket. It's going to be more like an event thing than but, it is going to be like a populist art form in the way that it is now. Maybe, and everything I, else is just going to be streaming. I don't think, again, I don't think the market will sustain that. I don't think people, I don't think people will pay that much money. I mean, that maybe, you know, if the economy... I'm talking about, like, the only places you can see a, a big movie like that is in large cities. And they're, think, and they're even, even in those cities, the theaters will be scaled down. Like, maybe I five or six per city. I think it's more likely that that type of movie just goes away for a while. Uh, You, you know, I think... 
I don't think there's already all these projects that are in the works. Right. And, uh, you know, Tenet was a big shit your pants moment for a lot of movie studios. Right. And so I think right now they're just trying to throw money at the wall. And once this next year happens and we don't get another top grossing film for a long time, like, I think they're going to be realize maybe this isn't the best investment. And I don't know. I just don't see. I just don't see investors wanting to fork over the kind of cash for an in-game style movie without the guaranteed return of an in-game style movie. I just. Right. I, I can't see that happening. I think after whatever is on the slate is kind of cleared over the next couple years. You're, I think we're just going to start seeing those budgets get scaled back in a big way. Uh, and well, that, I think, probably might be actually closer. be a good thing. Yeah, and I think it's kind of, in a weird way, kind of fitting that Endgame was, like, one of the last really big movies like this. Because, like, <laughs> how do you out outdo that, you know? And now, maybe let's we don't have to think about that for a minute. All right. Well... Definitely something's going to change, or or who knows, maybe there's some giant uh, New Deal economy plan where they just, like, pump all these different industries with a bunch of money to inflate them. I would not count on anything like that, uh, considering <laughs> that we are ten months deep into a fucking pandemic and we've gotten one stimulus check. Right. And now the talk is they're going to give people fucking like $600 or some Maybe. shit. Like, yeah, that's the a compromise. government, as it, they are so detached and have their heads so far up their ass uh, <laughs> that I think the idea of a radical revolution happening before them actually giving us what we need is much more likely. Right. Well, we'll see how, how well the, uh, the, the, uh, the theater lobby works in Hollywood or works yeah. in uh, Washington, rather. Same difference. Um, okay, let's go ahead and talk about the uh, Netflix original film, Mank. This is directed by David Fincher. This is a new film by him, written by an old screenplay that his dad wrote in the 90s, and he died before he was before it got produced. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Kind of a yeah. uh, interesting kind of thing. Yeah, his dad was sort of a cinephile. I mean, he, he worked in Hollywood. He wrote scripts. Um, but, you know, this is sort of a film about films. And uh, specifically, it's talking about the creation of the film uh, Citizen Kane, um, written by Herman Mankiewicz. Um, did you want to go into that a little bit more? What else is going on in this movie? Uh, uh, go into Citizen Kane? Go into, well, whatever. <laughs> I mean, we kind of are by proxy. Yeah. Um, so, go into the story of the movie? What do you want me to go into? <laughs> I'm, Herman Mankiewicz is, uh, he's a, he's, it's hard to sort of sum up this movie because it is very parallel to Citizen Kane. It's like, how do you right. sum up Citizen Kane? So, Herman Mankiewicz is a screenwriter who's sort of found himself on the outside of Hollywood looking in, um, he he sort of burned his bridges with um, most of the most powerful people in Hollywood. And out of nowhere, this uh, young, fucking super talented, fucking renaissance man, Orson Welles, mm -hmm. comes out of nowhere, kind of, takes Hollywood by storm and 
uh, offers Mink an opportunity to help him write a movie, to write a movie for him. His debut feature. Or yeah. what would be his debut feature? Was that his fucking debut feature? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Okay. I mean, we're going to get into a bunch of stuff here, but yeah. Uh, damn. Uh, yeah. Holy shit. Okay. I also, so full disclosure, I also have uh, saw Citizen Kane for the first time uh, in preparation for this movie based on your recommendation. Yes. Um, which I'm glad I did. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this movie is definitely not holding your hand as far as how much you need to know about that other movie. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a good segue because the this movie itself uh, is straight up ripping off the structure of Citizen Kane. It is it is an autobiography told in the way Citizen Kane tells a right. fictional biography, a pseudo fictional biography of uh, William uh, Randolph Hearst. Yeah, yeah, and so this is you know uh cuts around in time goes back and forth um the much the way citizen kane does and and, and it's you know paints Mink's uh sort of rise and descent in the hollywood mm-hmm. uh system much like citizen kane i mean it's kind of almost a remake of citizen kane <laughs> but but with the people that Citizen Kane was about. <laughs> right. Well, that kind of structure. I mean, Citizen Kane, when it came out, was one of the first films to really break chronology that way. And uh, to really kind of have this more novelistic approach to mm-hmm. to story where you're, co- you're going back and forth and you're kind of figuring out the context as you put it together. Um, that was one of the first screenplays to really do that. And that's why it was seen as revolutionary at the time. And now there's kind of a Keynesian structure that we've seen in other films as well i think uh most notably when david fincher directed um the social network a lot of people compared that to citizen kane oh i can see that now now that you said that and have seen citizen kane (laughs) (laughs) right so yeah i mean i i had not seen kane in a minute i i mean i definitely seen it i i watched it when i was in my early 20s um and loved it then and, uh, but I hadn't seen it in its entirety since I was maybe 23, 24 years old. Um, of course, going to film school, we watch clips of it all the time to talk about structure, to talk about all these different, you know, lighting techniques and, um, you know, different shots and deep focus and all of that stuff. Um, but I hadn't seen the movie and sort of t- taken it in as a story since I was in my early 20s. And so watching that again, because I watched it again in preparation for this, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it really does come in handy. And I was also able to sort of appreciate the movie more on a story level, because I think when I was younger, I was so kind of taken by the overwhelming aesthetics of Citizen Kane and just the the beautiful cinematography and and the um, the interesting narrative structure and, of course, Orson Welles crazy good performance um yeah that i that i was kind of just sort of drunk on the aesthetics of the movie never really you know i was also kind of young and stupid so i probably didn't like fully understand what the movie was really about and i knew nothing of william randolph hearst um Mm -hmm. so you know watching it again uh being older knowing more of the con like the the context of the film and how it was made and 
what it was referring to and and also knowing more like seeing like weird parallels of like you know populist well, politics and exactly i think just knowing more about uh, politics. the world <laughs> yeah yeah uh, and, and the way that like uh yellow journalism and sort of all of these things i think help kind of inform my my later viewing of citizen kane um to the point where i'm like wow i mean i mean Seems like an idiotic thing to say, but I was like, God damn, this is such a good fucking movie. It's still a really good movie. Um, and then I... Uh, it it sounds like an idiotic thing to say. Right. Uh, be- <laughs> for two reasons. Either you've seen Citizen Kane and you, you're like, duh. Or you haven't seen Citizen Kane and you're like, ugh, I wish people would shut up about this old fucking movie. Right, but right, right. here's the thing. It fucking holds up. Right. Holy shit. <laughs> it's so modern. I mean, the movie came out. The movie was made in thirty nine. Came out in forty one. Um, and there's so many things about it that feel modern. That feel like insensibility. Like these these hard cuts into different things. Um, these these like these very creative transitions from scene to scene. Like mm-hmm. stuff that even today you would have to sort of talk somebody into doing like, well, the, we'll see if the audience gets it. We're cutting from this to that. Um, uh, my one big criticism of Citizen Kane. Okay. I, I actually have two. I have two. I have two criticisms of Citizen Kane. I do think the newsreel bit at the beginning goes on a tad too long. Uh, Cause there was a point when I was like, is this just the movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And later. It's a prologue. Movie, Yes, yeah, uh, and I, I I wasn't prepared for that. It's it's pretty long, yeah. Um, which I think if I'd known known that, I would have been a little more prepared. But it's like right. it's like a solid seven minute sequence or something, right? And, and then, it's also kind of it's also sort of a meta contextual thing because it's all about you know the news industry, the paper industry, all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, and it's it's, it's a playing bit of into an that. exposition dump too. Sure, which, yeah, uh, but whatever. Um. Uh, and my other criticism is there is this transition late in the movie, which does not work, where a jarring giant parrot squawks out of nowhere <laughs> and you like zoom in through its eyeball. And I was like, okay, I get that they're like trying stuff out. We're trying some stuff. Yeah. That and for the most did- part, for the most part, I mean, I mean, I think what the movies, one of the many things Citizen Kane is well known for is... Greg Tolan's insanely good cinematography, but yes. almost every shot is an effect shot of some type. Yes. Um, even like just conversational stuff, the way they put people in shadow, people talk about like its influence on film noir and chiaroscuro lighting, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not going to go into it. film school here, but watching that and then watching Mank was very interesting for me because I was like, well, you know, this is pretty good, and there's a lot to be said here. It's a good little, like, film history thing, whatever. Some decent performances, but this ain't no Citizen Kane, which is totally unfair for me. Here's the thing. <laughs> I, I went the other way with this, where I was like, oh, shit, they're just doing Citizen Kane. Mm. I don't think I would have liked this had I not just watched Citizen Kane. Well, it sure helps. Yeah. Because uh, there's so much stuff, like, even, you know, even the way it's filmed, even the shots they use, which are just fucking ripped right from Citizen Kane. Right. 
and setting Mank up as this Citizen Kane figure who's writing Citizen Kane about another Citizen Kane was like, I I think that I... It is I one of know. those, it's both a film about film in a very obvious kind of way, yeah. but it also has that kind of trope of like the, the, the obsessive writer who writes himself into his work trope. You know, via, you know, Barton Fink or uh, you mentioned Trumbo online. Um, (laughs) I didn't actually, I haven't seen Trumbo. Okay. Well, or that or, or even something like Adaptation, which is probably the most explicit version of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's lots of movies, even uh, Naked, uh, Naked Lunch, all these kind of movies about writers who, who sort of end up writing their neurosis into the, the thing that they're making, which then mm. ends up informing each other. So there's that trope happening in the film. Um, and I don't want, and it's also extremely stylish. Uh, Mank is shot in black and white. Um, it has. This, uh, the the thing I noticed was the sound. Uh, I, right. Like, this kind of crackly reco- sound in the background, like analog sound. Yeah. I think they recorded it. Um, like all on boom and all on tape, like uh, with a lot. I mean, without like zoom focusing and all this crazy stuff you can do because the audio, the audio isn't as good as a movie nowadays can be. Right, uh, it's a little it, mono. And, yeah, and I think yeah. you know that's an intentional choice. I I feel like David Fincher is like was trying to recreate the. Uh, situation where Citizen Kane was made as much as he could, right? And and it's also uh, like there's little things like the cigarette burns in the corner and and yeah. you know I, there's I, obvious I kind of wish. Like, uh, I actually wish that he had gone a little bit further and filmed it in the same aspect ratio. Oh, um, the one four four. Yeah, like, which know. was something that um, like the Lighthouse did, which right. I thought was really cool. And I feel like that would have just hammered at home even more. Um, yeah, I mean they, I mean they hammer it pretty hard. <laughs> uh, well, the funny thing is though, even though the film is shot in black and white, and it's obviously making all this reference to Citizen Kane, it's not shot like Citizen Kane, except for when they do specific visual references. Like mm-hmm. there's a scene where he drops. A small, like, uh, hotel-sized bottle of alcohol on the floor, very much like the snow globe from Citizen Kane. Um, But other than things like that that are direct references, there's also kind of more just this kind of classic Hollywood style over it that sometimes feels a little bit like – it never feels as monolithic as as Citizen Kane. Like yes. and in and in the shots are not always um, as stylized. Well, like, but, I, but I also think that Mank as a character isn't as monolithic right, as as Kane, Citizen Kane, or or uh, uh, Charles Foster Kane, or or William Randolph Hearst. Like right. you know, he, I think, I think that was done intentionally because uh, you, they constantly refer to Mank as the jester. Right. As you know, he he's they they're constantly degrading the writer, and um, especially at the time, the writer was very degraded, right? Uh, and and undervalued. So I think there is intention behind that. There wasn't. It wasn't even entirely clear 
when he enters the project if he would even get credited on the film. Well, it, it seemed assumed that he well that he yeah, wouldn't. Yeah, I don't want to <clears throat> give away. I mean, it ended up. And I don't think this is a spoiler because it's on IMDb if you care to look, um, as well as the internet. Uh, but the only Academy Award that Citizen Kane won was for the screenplay. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where it was one of those films that wasn't as appreciated at the time. And then people kind of discovered it a decade or so later. And the French Which, found it and started writing about it. And, you know, that's what everyone... insane because, like, you know... We've always grown up in a post-Citizen Kane world, so it's like that's always been held up as one of the greatest movies of all time, if not the greatest movie ever made. So it's like, it's insane to me to think about it being like unappreciated unappreciated and underperforming. Well, you also have to realize that William Randolph Hearst like pretty much tried to bury the movie as much as possible when it came out. And he used all of his his power as a uh, as a influencer and as a gazillionaire to to uh trash the movie and get people to not Which, care about it but isn't there something comforting that you know uh uh almost a hundred years later uh it's hailed as the cinematic masterpiece and his efforts were you know he couldn't buy his way out of it uh, right, yeah, the movie found its audience regardless. But it, going back to Mank, I think that the interesting thing is that if there is an analog, a character analog, it's less Charles Foster Kane is his like you know his uh, his cipher in the story, and it's mm-hmm. more the reporters in the film, right? Because he's kind of like this outside looking into into the world of. Of William See, Randolph Hearst, he's he's making all these observations and yes and no. I think I because here's the thing. I think he, I think he sees himself as that. He sees himself as this, as this objective observer, but in reality, he's not. Yeah. Which I mean, here's the thing. All of this is to say, uh, this is a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of uh, beyond just. Hollywood jerking itself off, which it tends to like to do with projects like these. Right. Um, uh, but I actually think this is a pretty condemning movie of Hollywood. Uh, yeah. In a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, so I think all of this stuff is really cool. And the fact that it's a movie trying to have a conversation with, uh, again, a almost a hundred year old movie. Uh, I think that is really cool. And where this movie might fall short, which I think it does in some ways, um, I think it's overall effective because, you know, it got me to watch Citizen Kane finally, and it got me to, like, think about it and to think about it and to think about this movie. So, Right. I mean, you're, not only are, are you getting just the film, but you're also kind of getting all this historical context along with it. Beyond just film history, yeah. Right, uh, you because know, this like, is also, like, in the middle of the Depression and right on the verge of going from Hoover to FDR. Upton the, Sinclair is, like, this populist uh, guy played by Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill Nye the fucking <laughs> Science Guy! <laughs> Which I love, yeah, I, by the way. I was like, was is, is that fucking Bill Nye? <laughs> 
We should talk about some of the performances in here because I think obviously Gary Ullman's great. He's playing very young in this movie. Like he's playing 40 something, which isn't all the time believable, but in the context of the style of the film, it, it works ish. Yeah. I want to talk about Amanda Seyfried because I think this yeah. is by far the best thing she's ever done. And she really steals the show. I would be very surprised she's if she's so not good. nominated, if not wins. Best supporting actress, or is this a best per actress role? I don't know how they I, I, figured that out. Thing. But uh, who knows if the Oscars will even exist next year, right? Or what um, they'll be. And I think Mank might be the only thing nominated. It'll be Mank <laughs> and fucking uh, Onward and uh, Birds of Prey. <laughs> right. gonna, those are like the only movies that came out this year, right? Um, so yeah, I I think. Uh, I mean, and all of that is, like, politics. So, like, they'll nominate her for supporting actress if they think she has a better chance of winning that or whatever. But right, right, right. Whatever. Uh, the Oscars are bullshit, but, yes, yeah. she's amazing. It's she not is- It's not worthy. It's not worth it to think about it in those terms. But I'm. But this is that kind of performance is what yeah. I'm saying. It's just like, whoa. Like, I mean, Amanda Seyfried's been around forever, but I really feel like she hit a new level here. Like, she's a different oh, yeah. kind of actress. And it's and she's it's playing very, William Randolph um, Hearst's uh, floozy. Marion Davies. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, she definitely has that old Hollywood charm. Like, she yeah. nails it. And, and she also, I think... It's both I, a broad I, performance, because she's doing, I, like, the... She's doing like the old timey accent and stuff like that, and she—it's broad on the surface, but uh, it's, but I think it's actually like, emotionally, it's very subtle. Yeah, and a um, lot of nuance. Yeah, there's these scenes, like the way the movie starts out. I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be like the Hudsark proxy, like basically, like everyone's kind of, you know, talking in like newsy talk and da 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 da. And this is just like a fun old time in old Hollywood, and here's yeah. the studios, and you know. And That's then the movie kind of reveals itself more and more as it goes. Mm. Specifically, I think this character almost, it's almost both a plus and a minus because I think she sort of overshadows other performances in the film, but she's so I, damn good. I don't know. I, I think this is a pretty strong cast. I think. Oh, yeah. It's great uh, all around. This is one of the best things I've seen Gary Oldman do in a while. And Gary Oldman is nothing else if not consistent. Very dependable. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is a high point for him. Uh, Charles Dance is great, as always, in a small, uh, smaller part. Um, yeah. But he, he fills the screen. I mean, if you need someone to play monolithic, you get fucking Charles Dance. Right. And the guy who plays uh, Orson Welles. Tom Burke. Yeah. Holy shit. Uh, I think Orson Welles is one of those guys that is very easy to do an impression of, but I think it's Pinky hard Pinky in the to, brain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's hard to do it justice. Um, I was very impressed by him as well. Right. Um, and it's a much, he, you know, Wells kind of looms over the whole story because you know what this is all leading up to, but he's this kind of He's a sort of phantom in the background of the story that, you know, is kind of mm-hmm. watching over the whole thing because you know where his career is going to go after this. Um, yeah. And he's such a larger than life person uh, mm-hmm. beyond just what he was as an actor and a director. Uh, and that's a kind of what makes a story great is you're kind of getting this backdoor into this larger than life character actor as well as 
um, what is, you know, held as one of the greatest films of all time, you're, you're sort of seeing it from this askew perspective. And here's the, yes. And normally this type of movie, I do not like, like normally this sort of like movie about a movie or the, you know, this is the behind the, the scenes story. Like I'm, I'm like, sure. This is, those are fine for what they are usually. Um, uh, as you know, these sort of like time capsule movies or whatever. And at the beginning of the movie, I thought this was going to be that a pretty standard, like fair, like you said, very Hudsucker proxy, very like, this is an old timey Hollywood joint thing. Um, and so for the first, first chunk of it, I kind of wasn't that into it. I was like, I was kind of like, okay, I get what you're doing here. The cute. Um, and it's a, I think it's about halfway through once the movie sort of tells you what it's really about. And once it gets into like the politics of the movie and, uh, all that stuff that I was like, oh no, this has something to say. This is like, this movie's working on more levels than just here's someone who used to do movies. Right. Right. And I think that it's, it's worth it's probably going to be a film that's worth revisiting because I feel like there are layers here that aren't always evident. Yeah. I found the movie to be a tad cold. I liked it a lot. I thought that it was very informative. Um, It's trying some interesting stuff, but I did think maybe it was in part because of who David Fincher is as a director. Maybe it is in part because of the, the overwhelming sense of style of the film Something about it, I think, left me out emotionally a little bit more than I wanted to be. And maybe that's why I gravitated towards Amanda Seyfried more than I did Gary mm. Oldman. is because I felt she's the heart of the movie, obviously. Yeah. Um, and their relationship, um, this yeah. kind of flirtatious but pretty wholesome relationship between the two of them, has, is, is essentially the emotional strain there is. But it, it's it's... I, I almost feel like the movie's kind of more concerned with history and ideas than it is with emotional storytelling. And so some I, there's long stretches of the movie where I'm feeling like, okay, this is all cool and interesting. And I, you know, I've read some of this history before, but like, let's where dramatically, where are we? I kind of completely disagree with you on that. Uh, <laughs> okay. That's I, fine. I, I I definitely felt that, like I said, more near the beginning yeah. um, when it's all just sort of setting stuff up. But I think there's a few scenes that that to me, I thought were very emotionally driven. And and um, I mean, most of that work does come at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, but to me, it was a it was very effective. I was like, uh, I actually think this is one of David Fincher's more like. Uh, warm movies to me, right? And you get you get like him, you know, producing his father's script and all of this stuff. Like there's, and maybe there's a little bit of a weird juxtaposition between the style of film that is as as it is written than it is directed. And I because I think David Fincher, I don't, I can't say that I've read a lot of Jack Fincher work, so I don't, mm-hmm. I can't say you know like what his thing is per se, but. You know, judging off of this and seeing the type of movies that David Fincher usually makes, he usually does this kind of 
stripped down genre fare. And he's very, very fucking good at that. This is, I think, trying to have a bit more of a holistic um, energy throughout it. I think that it, it, it's yeah. trying to pull in more than just – it is more than just style, although it uses a lot of style. And it may be in some ways too much. Maybe in some ways I think that he's he's a little – He's a little nervous about doing a film that's by and large emotional um, or trying to doing more of a character oriented piece. Uh, But then, you know, something like The Social Network, in a way, in a way, I kind of feel like that film is kind of doing this better. And in some ways, I I think I, I agree with you. Like I said, I hadn't ever really I mean, I hadn't seen Citizen Kane, so I hadn't. Right. No frame of reference for that comparison. I'm not but. saying this is a bad film by any means. I'm and I'm still no, no, kind of no. chewing on it. I haven't really even but, fully come to a consensus. But if we're talking about the the warmth of the movie, uh, uh, in in the the character arc, I think the social network is a much more, um, is a much more cold and analytical look at. Uh, a figure that he almost paints as is a total sociopath, um, right? Whereas yeah. this is like, I really felt for Mank, and I felt that sort of betrayal of a system that he never quite fit within in the first place, and just got totally fucked over by. And uh, in I, I think it would not have worked absolutely without Amanda Seyfried's character. Yeah, or and also um uh. Uh, what's her name? Um, who's the scribe? Lily Collins. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um, and the and uh, uh, God, I'm terrible with names right now. Is it Rooney Mara as his wife? As Mank's wife? E, uh, no. Uh, Topence Middleton. Sarah Mankiewicz. I thought that was Rooney Mara. Damn, Tuppence. Tuppence. That is. Can you have a more British name? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think there there is also this very interesting thing going on with the the these three women in his life, right? Um, his wife, and uh, she mentions him having these uh, platonic affairs, which to me was so interesting. I was like, oh shit, what a fucking dagger that is like i don't know i just uh but but it wasn't meant to hurt him i don't know i i was like fascinated but but like that's what i mean i actually felt like at that point in the movie that we got there i really felt some of that dialogue that yeah you get the payoffs for sure i think you definitely get the payoff with amanda seyfried what's playing more prominently throughout you get the payoff with the wife you get the payoff with his caretaker. You get the payoff with Orson Welles. You get the payoff with Orson Welles. You get the- and with Charles Dance, that fucking scene? Holy shit. I was like, fuck, this is... Uh, just the, the, the scene where he's like walking him out of the house. Right. The, the drunk party. I was like, fuck me. Just that whole scene. I was like, this is incredible. That I think that was where it kind of like... I'm a little torn on the scene. I, th- I really yeah I know that it's on the poster I'm pretty sure every they would call it the centerpiece of the movie it's yes, like absolutely. it's where every where the rubber hits a road I actually think it explicates uh the themes a little too obviously and I and I'm not so sure 
about the drunk acting. I think it's a little, a little much. Um, I think that a version of that scene could have worked. I think as it is in the movie, it might just be a hair melodramatic. But that's okay because the movie is indulges melodrama. So no, I think you're a fucking stick in the mud. I (laughs) loved it. I was I was here for it, and then uh, it's a little uh, big. It is big. It is big. But in a it's very Oscar clippy. Yeah, I here's the thing. I was more referring to um, Charles Dance's rebuttal. Right. Um, I think the the and this is one of the things I think. You could maybe define Fincher's career this way, is that the reactions to Mankiewicz's big scene, um, you know, both literally and in the context of the dinner party, uh, him, you know, making these drunk proclamations, um, that the reactions are almost more interesting than the center performance. I... I just, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's really well done. Uh, I mean, drunk people can be very melodramatic, especially <laughs> a drunk writer, right? Uh, who's spilling his fucking guts. Like I, yes, it's big, but it to me was very believable. Uh, uh, it was believably big, and and I think uh, very well done. Um, I, again, I was. Hard, it was hard for me with this movie at first. Um, and ultimately, I wish I had been able to see it in a theater. I wish I had gotten that theatrical experience yeah. with this movie. Um, because it is so theatrical. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, and, you know, due to time and stuff, I had to watch it on my phone, which I wasn't Ooh, super happy gross. with. I know. I'm offended right now. I have to do that sometimes. <laughs> um, that's not. Uh, you didn't even watch it. Keith didn't watch Mank, so we're just you. gonna move fuck on. You. To I the liked next it one. more than you did. <laughs> fuck you. Uh, yeah. I, I overall, I ended up really liking this movie and finding it very interesting. And I think it it does enough of its own thing that it's not just writing on uh, Citizen Kane's coattails, which I think is easy to feel that right from from the start of it. Yeah, I think those parallels are going to reveal themselves pretty obviously. I do think there's interesting there's layers in there. It, it it is it is more it's less obvious than it seems. And just now even talking it out, I'm kind of realizing that more and more. Um I might have even like jumped up a grade through our conversation. I th- I think it has for me too. That that's an- another yeah. thing that I think is really interesting. Like after I watched it, I I kind of felt unsettled like i didn't know how i felt about it i stuff and it's still pretty fresh like i watched it today i i still think i need some a little bit of distance from it but uh, overall the more i think about it the more i really liked it yeah i want to see it again because i feel like there's probably a lot i missed um and i i rarely do this but i might even like dust off an old grad school book like i have a whole book on rko and read the chapter on citizen kane and then watch it again because i mean and that's what i'll say ultimately is you you really got to fucking watch that movie before you see this (laughs) yeah and i think that you know some people that might bother some people um but you know you should anyway and it's a it's a good companion piece to the movie 
dramatically a little flat for me sometimes, not all the time. I give it a B, but it's a very interesting B. Uh, I give it an A. I think it's it's one of the more interesting movies I've seen this year. And again, I'm... Well, that's for sure. And I'm a little cynical when it comes to this type of movie anyway. Like, right. I kind of went into it holding the movie at arm's distance. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't see Trumbo. I didn't really have any interest in Trumbo. Like, I just... I'm not that into Hollywood circle jerks. I don't mm-hmm. know. I like it sometimes. Uh, it depends yeah. on who's at the party, I guess. <laughs> um but yeah, I I ended up uh, thinking this was doing some really interesting and, and smart things that I was not expecting. Uh, but, you know, the uh, David Fincher is also uh, very consistent. So Yeah, that's true. And I'm going to say, if you're the, like, Fight Club 7 David Fincher fan, and that's, like, you're what you're going into this to watch, even, like, Mindhunter, this might not be for you. Because yeah, it doesn't, not. it doesn't feel like one of those movies. Even though, like Reznor and Atticus Ross do the score here, but it's very different from anything they've done. Did they? Yeah, I had. You kind of just fucking blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's a traditional like strings and horns score. They don't. There's no synth on it. So, but I had, you can hear it a little bit in some of like the like chord patterns or whatever. I know nothing about music, but. I had no fucking clue. <laughs> Even like looking at the IMDb, this whole conversation. I had, are you serious? Mm-hmm, yeah. Wow. But it's it's that, very different. I'm like from... really impressed <laughs> by them. <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot to see here. There's a lot to like. It's uh, it's it's a meaty. It's a meaty movie. Okay. It's a movies movie. It is. It's movies for guys who like movies, but different types of guys and different types of movies. <laughs> it's a movie for guys who like movies about movies. Yeah. Um, let's go ahead and review uh, Mixed Nuts. Shifting gears. Yeah. <laughs> now for something completely different. Mixed Nuts, 1994. It was directed and written by Nora Ephron, who had just come off a huge success with Sleepless in Seattle. This was her follow-up to that. Also a big cast. Uh, Steve Martin, Madeline Kahn, uh, Anthony LaPaggia. Juliette Lewis, Rob Reiner, Adam Sandler, Liev Schreiber. Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler. Even Jon Stewart has a tiny-ass role in this movie. And And Parker Parker Posey. Posey. Yeah. Yeah. They're in it for two seconds. Uh, This is a Christmas farce. About uh, a, a small little phone operation that Steve Martin runs with Madeline Kahn and Rita Wilson, who is also in the film. And they uh, take su- their suicide hotline. Basically, it's a busy time of the year because it's Christmas. Um, and as they're closing up shop for one of their days before the holidays start, uh, everything kind of goes wrong. And all of these unexpected guests and visitors and interlopers come into the situation, including a pregnant Juliette Lewis with a uh, drunk boyfriend she's trying to get rid of, or a loser boyfriend she's trying to get rid of, and there's a serial killer on the run, and uh, uh, Adam Sandler's playing ukulele, and it's uh, everyone's I got a like- potted plant on their head, and it's a wacky, zany adventure. 
yeah, he's kind of like the original like Uke guy in this. He's just coming in doing his Adam Sandler shtick. He's oh, he is. He's, he is hard. He's um, just coming in doing the the dumb baby voice that he does in when he's phoning at the fuck in. And this movie sucks. And it was actually painful to watch. Um, and I didn't know that going in because I thought this was a well liked movie. People talk about this movie as like a Christmas thing. Um, and I'm like. 25 minutes into it and i'm like god this really sucks though like is it is this just me is my not in the mood like what's going on and i'm i look up like things like the imdb or the metacritic or even the uh you know the different kind of scores on i'm like oh no no okay it's understood that this movie's terrible okay i feel like i'm a sane person again okay so now i'm just going to watch the rest of our 10 minutes of this piece of crap and then that's what i did now you can tell gonna... me how I'm a I'm you can't tell me this movie's good. No, I can't. But I had a little bit of fun with it. Uh I I don't think it's I I mean I think it kind of comes down to how much do you like farces? Uh cuz it it is trying to be like a, a, a classic like a, like a revolving door yeah. farce kind of thing. And I think some stuff works. I think I think you're right that a lot of it doesn't. Um, here's the thing. I am here for Madeline Kahn. She is the reason for the season. I think sure. she's so funny in this movie. Uh, she was like sh- cracking me up with basically every line she had. Once she's out of the movie, I'm a lot less interested in it. But I don't know. It's silly. It's dumb. It's How much of a knee slapper was all of the... Uh really dated transphobia with Liev Schreiber. Not great. That uh, part was pretty uncomfortable. Pretty hard. Um, pretty hard yeah. to watch. Um, yeah. And, I, yeah, I mean, Madeline, God bless her. She's doing her best. Steve, Steve Martin is, you know, well, here's the thing. Everyone's just coming in doing shtick. That's all yes. this movie is, is everyone yes. like has their thing, their flavor of comedy. And Nora Ephron is just like, you're funny on SNL. Come in here and just do your like fucking. And I think I can update nailed, character. I think you nailed the problem of this movie is it's just a bunch of shtick and there's not really any glue holding it together. There's right. Like a there, story. There's not really anything <laughs> to this movie. It's no. just like. Uh, and honestly, it's just I, a bunch of very poorly conceived comedy set pieces that go nowhere, that connect to nothing. There's okay, you hated it. We get it. <laughs> there was nothing you liked about this movie. No, pretty much no. I I'm I'm trying. I'm struggling to to compliment it in some way. I like Rita Wilson. Yeah, I liked Rita Wilson. Uh, I think. You know, Steve Martin is doing his thing, and right. it sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't. Um, there was a funny joke about the Santana wins, but it's a very, like, inside baseball California uh, that, joke. That was a good joke! That was a good joke! <laughs> uh, it's also, like, some of the stuff with the Leave Schreiber, the transphobic stuff, was unfortunate, because, honestly, it was almost close to not being cringy uh because like in once you get over the fact that it's a a man dressed in women's clothing which is a very much like a joke 
Um, right. They do treat her like a character, which I do appreciate that. Uh, right. Once you get she over, becomes, she becomes part of the gang in a in a sense, but it's yeah. She's still largely a, a, a punchline in yes. through most, of, and it's not just a guy in drag. Like she is playing a, essentially a trans character. Yeah, she is a is she. For, uh, from what I understood, Steve Schreiber she, is playing a, a trans character. Yes, from what I understood, uh, he was playing a trans woman. Yes. Uh, yeah, and, and a he's lot of that very committed, like he's doing the thing, but it's just so fucking ill conceived. And it, I get it, like it was the 1994. It was the, it, but you yes, know, but also here's here's the even thing. films I, that were seen as progressive as the time, like The Birdcage, are a little cringy now. Totally. And again, I'm defending it a little bit only because all of the characters are treated like jokes. So right. in a weird way, it's almost progressive. But there is some really cringy stuff to watch. <laughs> I I will give you that. I'm just saying it, at least she was treated like an actual character uh, in in ways that most movies wouldn't even do. But she is also the punchline of some pretty cringy jokes. Right. Anyway, I... I think this movie's fine. Uh, I don't think it's as bad as you're making it sound. But I also don't think it's good. Like, I don't think it's, like, a Christmas classic. I think it's just sort of a dumb 90s comedy that that didn't work more than it worked. <laughs> I don't know. It It just feels very of its time and very, like, some stuff was funny, some stuff wasn't. I don't, it feels very, like... Like... This was meant to be on TNT at two in the afternoon on December 14th, you know, and that's that's all it needs to be. And that's fine. Yeah. And I know that, like, the movie has its fans. I I just can't abide. It's just to me, it's like it's like negative comedy. It's like a black hole. I laughed almost not at all. And it just got to the point where it was hard to keep paying attention because it was just so unfunny and it just kept getting unfunnier as it went. And I, I'm not like against farces. It's not my favorite comedy style. I think there's a good way to do them. This is not I, it. I also think that for the most part, it doesn't <clears throat> pull off the farcical elements that it's going for. I, I think that is to me, the biggest sin right. of this movie is it's once it turns into full farce mode, it doesn't really accomplish that very well. Um, right. Well, and there's so, also like this, this, it's a, I think the movie thinks that it's being edgy and dark, like, because yeah. they work at a suicide hotline and they're like taking I, these calls very casually. And there's I did like, like the part with Jeffrey, Wright. I thought that was pretty funny. Okay, yeah. So, there, I mean, there's little things. But, but yeah, so there's that. There's a serial killer thing. There's this kind of, like, you know, people get knocked off in the movie and stuff like that and bodies being carried around and whatever. But it never registers to me as, like, edgy or dark or, like, adult or anything. It just comes off as silly and frivolous and just zero calories. That's fine. It's a fucking 90s Christmas movie. Like... <laughs> Like it's meant to be zero. I don't know. I, I think, I think you're being a little bit of a, a curmudgeon on this one. I think it's fine. I didn't love it. I, you're making me defend a movie that I'm like, 
sure, whatever. To me, this is like uh, uh, defending. I'm trying to think of of an equivalent, um, but I am having a hard time. Uh, of just like just a movie that's whatever. Like I don't. It's not bad enough to hate, but it's not good enough to like. If you know what I, if you get what I mean, like I don't know. Does that make sense? Well, here's the thing. I think Christmas movies tend to get a pass um, because they feel novelty. Like sure. just just in the, just because they're made for a certain time of the year, there's kind of a decorative feel to whatever the movie is. So even if it's a Christmas horror film or a Christmas comedy or a Christmas family film, you know, more people are willing to watch trash. If it has some sleigh bells and garland on it, because it's of the season and you're in the mood and you can just kind of ignore it. And it's exactly it just sort of washes over and you're in. You're never going to have to watch it again unless it's another Christmas, which is at least a year away. But probably even less likely you'll watch it ever again. But that's fine because you'll be like, oh, well, it's this dumb Christmas movie. Who cares? But. Exactly. If if this movie didn't take place during Christmas, if you took all that stuff out, it was just the first stuff, it would be wretched. It would be rancid. I think that's going, I, see, I don't think it's that bad. I don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's wretched. I think it's just like (laughs) not good. I, I think it's just like a perfectly not good movie. Not every bad movie has to be fucking terrible. It can just be not a good movie. And here's the thing. I agree with you. It's not good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am a Steve Martin fan and, and I think, you know, he's done much better, much funnier movies. Uh, it's, that's, I just am like, it's not, it's not Mm -hmm. worth investing he did a movie with <clears throat> he did a movie with Nora Ephron before this some blue heaven i think it's called where he plays a gangster playing baseball that wasn't uh, very yeah, good wasn't, either wasn't uh, martin short in that one or no rick, no. rick moranis St- uh i don't think so it was steve martin i know that for certain he has a bad flat top haircut in it yeah um, my my blue heaven my blue heaven that was an that was another collaboration between the two that was also not good uh this is worse in my opinion, um, Rick Moranis is in my blue heaven. Oh, I, I haven't. It's been haven't a minute since I've seen that one. <laughs> I he, sure. I guess I, if <laughs> if you want to hate it, it's fine. I don't care. I don't care enough about it to defend it anymore. I didn't think it was. I think you do though. I didn't think it was unwatchable. I was just like, whatever. This is whatever. Okay. There are parts that are unwatchable. I will give you that. <laughs> there are parts that are that bad. But Madeline Kahn is so good. I thought she was great in this. She's all right. She's very funny. When she's in stuck in the elevator, I was that part. I was kind of hoping she'd be in the elevator the whole movie. I thought so, too, because that would have been a concept. But there's nothing like, like consistency and idea in this movie. So the things just happen for no reason and whatever. Okay, um okay <laughs> that's how i felt about that uh next week the the christmas movie we're going to be talking about which you can stream i guess on hulu as well as amazon prime is the scandinavian horror comedy rare exports i already hate it just in in just for movie revenge yes <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm, I've heard good things. Um, our friends in our Marco Polo group were talking about it a little while ago. And I've meant to see it, never have. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about rare exports. Um, but if anybody has anything to say about any of the other films that we talked about in this episode, uh, whether it be Mank or Mixed Nuts, are you one of those weirdos who likes this movie? Or Citizen Kane, if you happen to watch that. <laughs> Please tell us. I want to hear from some Mixed Nuts fans. I want to hear some from, from Mixed Nuts stands. I think Todd Flatland likes this movie. I think I remember him saying that back in the video store days. And I know he listens. So, Todd, I w- what is your uh, in defense of mix, Mixed Nuts? If you send that to MacGuffinPod at gmail.com, I will read it on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, you I like can also you're follow- just assuming he's a, a, a Mixed Nutter. I'm pretty sure I remember him saying that. Um, and if anybody has anything else to say, you can also reach us on our social media at MacGuffinPod on, on uh, Facebook.com slash MacGuffinPod and at MacGuffinPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. Um, and you can read uh, the reviews I write every so often for the Idaho State Journal at uh, under their movie tab, uh, arts and entertainment movie tab, IdahoStateJournal.com. Um, and be sure to read the reviews and uh, the articles by the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, you can also follow my art account where I do drawings, drawings sometimes, uh, at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and Keith has been sharing... Oh, yeah. With uh, in our Instagram stories, another reason to follow us on Instagram. Um, you're doing a movie a day game. Yeah, so uh, it, it might be hard to catch up at this point, but basically, for the entire month of December, we have one Christmas movie every day to watch. Um, uh, if you watch the movies on the day that it's on the calendar, you get 10 points. If you watch it not on that day, but it's still on the calendar, you get five points. And then there's some bonus days where if you watch our pick, you get 20 points or you can watch whatever you want for 10 points. So um, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, There have been some people who've been playing with us uh, online. Um, Again, you know, at this point, if you're listening to it, it's probably going to be hard to catch up. (laughs) Uh, But who knows? Also, it's just fun and some... Some fun uh, uh, Christmas movies you can check out. Yeah. My wife wants me to plug her Instagram, um, at vro 19 She is also doing a fun little thing for the holidays. Uh, she's doing a cock- cocktail advent calendar that she found on Reddit. Um, and so she's been doing all the cocktails. Uh, she has a very impressive bar set up. And she's been taking a picture uh, of each one. Uh, she's also telling me she posts the recipe as well. So if you want to, you know, play along and, and make the drinks with her, um, those, you know, those are available. And if you're looking for some Christmas spirits, uh, she has some really good recipes to share. So check that out at Vero19. All right. That is it for the podcast. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one.